in my favorite words from Michael Scott, I'm not superstitious, I'm a little stitious. How are you superstitious or a little stitious in your life? Now, I know my actions or anything that I do do not impact my sports teams. I know it intellectually. I mean, I know it. However, here are just a few of my evolving superstitions and habits. When I played baseball, and now as I coach baseball, I put this superstition on my, the kids that I coach. The, the, the bats, when they're on the rack or on the fence, they cannot cross. If they cross, you will not get hits. They all have to be you know, kind of the same vertically aligned. And the kids just don't understand this. But they will. You don't talk about a no-hitter when you're in the game. You don't, you don't mention it. Much like you don't talk about, I've never gotten COVID. <laughs> you just don't speak those things. When I watch, particularly the Seahawks, I have special socks, which I've talked about. And I rotate these special socks, depending on how they've done the previous week. And I also cannot be overly positive when I watch my sport team, because if I'm overly positive, good things will not happen. So I kinda, I'm really negative. Like, if they catch a ball and they're running far, all right, go down, don't fumble it. Instead of, let's go to the touchdown. Like, like end the good play, that's good enough, end it now. This is how I am. Because right? if you're too positive, bad things will happen. I have to sit in certain spots or cross my legs in a certain way and then change them if it, they don't work. And listen, you don't pray for your team. You do not pray for your team. However, and I think I've mentioned this before, and uh, don't judge me too hard on this, but in 2005, this is, um, this is my first year of being pastor here, um, so it was a 2006 Super Bowl. It, so the Seahawks were in it against the Steelers. And um, so that Sunday after church, I, I, I went and I served communion to all the homebound members. And in my back of my mind said, this will put God in good favor. <laughs> you know what? They didn't win. They didn't win. They, so that didn't work. So when they got in the Super Bowl in 2013, I didn't do that <laughs> because it didn't work that time. I mean, I knew that that's not how God works. And I knew that was a terrible thought. And I still know today. And then in 2014, I'm not sure what happened. So uh, I've forgotten, forgotten that year. See, I know intellectually my actions have nothing to do with any outcome. And that's not how God interacts with me. Yet, I still do them, and I still think them. In fact, I can't even control whether I think them or not. I can ask them, please take these thoughts away from me, and yet they still pop up in my mind. And maybe you don't have any superstitions or little stitions regarding your sports teams, but all of us, every human has a tendency to fall prey to superstition. And here's what superstitions are. There are certain behaviors, objects, or even beliefs that we think will protect us from what we fear might happen. 
right? Behaviors, objects, and beliefs that we think will protect us from the things that we fear the most. Now, all of us, we have these kind of certain OCD. It's not really fair to call them OCD, but compulsive behaviors. We want things in certain orders. That's a little bit of a superstition. Like it has to be a certain way or it's not right. We get in that way with our faith as well, too. We all have these tendency to superstitions in our faith. We, we spiritualize objects. We spiritualize behaviors, right beliefs, thinking that they will control or dictate outcomes in our life and the world around us. If we have the right belief, if we behave the right way, somehow we will control God and allow things to happen the way they ought to. Or we'll please God, and therefore good things will happen to us. All of it, all of that kind of thinking is a superstition. All of that kind of thinking is a way to try to control God. All of that way is actually trying to manipulate God and actually is not trusting God at all, but trusting in something else. All of us fall prey to this in our life. And I want to take a look. This is why I read Jeremiah this morning. A look at some of the religious pious superstition held by God's people. Let's look. So I want, if you don't, we don't, we, were, we haven't been in Jeremiah, so I'm just kind of jumping in Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet, called at a very young age. And a prophet is simply this, a messenger of God. And particularly, God directly speaks to him and he speaks God's words directly. And Jeremiah was a prophet during the, uh, to Judah, when the Babylonian empire was reigning. And so God used Jeremiah to call his people to repent and turn back and to trust him and him alone because they weren't trusting him. Jeremiah saw the decline of the Assyrian empire and the rise of the Babylonian empire. He saw the conquest of the Babylonian over Judah. He saw the conquest of the Babylonians over Jerusalem and he saw them conquest over the temple themselves. You can see this through the, the, the book of Jeremiah. He's constantly warning them, and all these terrible things happen. And no one ever believes Jeremiah and God's word. Let's look at Jeremiah 7. This is actually his first sermon in the book. Ser- Jeremiah 7, 1-4. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. <laughs> so he, he's at the gate of the temple. And so God says, proclaim this to everyone. All you who are coming to worship the Lord, you need to hear this. We know why you're coming in. Now hear this very clearly. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways. And your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah stands at the gates of the temple, proclaims to everyone who's coming to worship God. He says, Repent, you are sinners, you are not trusting God, you need to change your ways. And if you do repent, 
want you to think about what he says. If you do repent, you can now stay. You can now come in this temple and you can reside with God. You can preside with him. You can be here right in his presence. You get to be with him. Which implies if you don't, you can't be with God anymore. He will banish you from his presence. That's a big deal. That's not a small word. You can understand why people are like, get out of here, Jeremiah. What do you know? And he goes like, you, you're, you're trusting in these words like this, this repeated, right? The temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. And this is, this is the superstition of temple theology. I want you to think back. God promised to Abraham a land, possession, and his presence. Like, God is calling a people out of Abraham. Jeremiah, uh, Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, a promise with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. In Genesis 17, 7 through 8. And God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. And I will give to you and to your offsprings after you the land of your sojourns, all the land of Canaan for everlasting possession. I will be their God. You see, the people of Judah, the Israelite, they knew God promised this to them. They were God's chosen people. They were God's family. God is with us. He's not with anyone else. God resides with us. Micah 3.11, I want you to hear this. It, it, Micah's a prophet around the same time as Jeremiah. It, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. This is a, this is a, a pious, superstitious uh, arrogance that God's people had. Hey, God is with us. Does he not reside with us? Is this not his temple? His temple, which is the symbol that God is present with us? If, if God is present with us, certainly no one can be against us. Certainly, we are his favored people. Nothing can happen to us. No, no incoming conquering army can harm us. No disaster. In the historical context, I want you to understand that, uh, so Judah has this place, and, and, and Jerusalem was a, a heavily armored and guarded city with walls, and the people were in Jerusalem. <laughs> and, and around that time, the Babylonian army was marching in the lands, conquering nation after nation. And so they know, they know this is happening, and they're saying, Psh, that army's not going to harm us. Nothing will befall us. God is with, he resides, this is his temple, this is his house. He's with us. Now, they're not totally off. There's a little bit of truth. The faith is God will protect us because of he's made a promise with us. And certainly God has made a promise, but they're not fully understanding what that promise is. The problem is what Jeremiah is saying. It's like, a, listen, you say you trust in God. You, you're walking in this house. 
saying, we're going to go worship God, and yet every action that you do in your life actually doesn't live out trust. It lives out trust in something else, in yourself. In, In fact, they're actually worshiping other gods at that time. There's nothing in their life that is showing day in and day out they trust, and yet they walk into this temple like, hey, God is with us. He's chosen us. We're protected. Their actions don't actually match their words of faith and trust. Their words of worship. You see, faith is a cognitive, intellectual idea that we grasp, I hold on to. But faith also is not just an idea, it's an action. It's, it, it, it's correlated to the same thing. You can't have an idea of faith that I trust in God and actually do not live out trust. Try this with people. Oh, I trust so-and-so, but none of your actions in your life actually demonstrate trust. It's the same way we talk about love. Love is a word and it is an action. They're always tied together. And God said, you have separated these two things. Jeremiah 7, 5 through 8. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one, justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, You trust in deceptive words to no avail. I just want you to think about what God just said. If you execute justice, if you don't oppress the sojourner, if you you care for the fatherless, the the widow, shed innocent blood in this place, if you don't go after other gods, this actually all implies this is exactly what they're not doing. They're not doing any of this, and yet they walk into God's temple and try to worship him. That's not an action that goes along with this faith. That's not, that doesn't reflect God's character at all. They are not living out their trust. They're not living out their love for God. And this is exactly what Jeremiah is saying. It, it's a live out your actions of faith. Live them out. Live out your faith. And this is not an exhaustive list. There are more ways in which they are failing. But but in essence, what he's, Jeremiah is saying is that if you want to love God, if you want to put your trust in him, then your actions need to reflect that as well. This is, this is that commandment of love God and love your neighbor. You can't, you can't do one without the other. You are really never loving your neighbor unless you're loving God. And you are never loving God unless you're loving your neighbor. And God just gives very particular things. Hey, care for those that need to be cared for. Don't neglect them. That's, that's how you can worship me. And yet you come in this place and you go out and you neglect all those things in your life. If you're doing these things, you are dwelling with me. Whether you're in the temple or not. I am not saying, and this is not saying, this is very clear. I want everyone to hear this very clearly. Jeremiah is not saying, by doing these things, executing justice, that you will compel God to dwell with you. That is not what is being said. 
it, because that would be a superstition. So if you do these things, it does not compel God. Like, if I do the right things, therefore God will be with me. I will be on his right. That's a way of trying to control and manipulate God. That would be a works-based faith. That would be a superstitious faith, a, a pious faith. I, I want to talk a little bit more about that. That is not what it's saying. Scott read uh, in his book, The Wholeness Imperative, says this. He's talking about uh, the people of, of Judah. Their trust in the presence of God to protect them is misplaced if it is not the result of true faith and the fruit of that faith. just want to hope you understand that, right? So their, their trust is in Hey, God promised that he will be with us. Therefore, we can do whatever we want. And God will do that. And he's saying, it's, it's also not, hey, if we do the right things, then God will protect us. That's not what it's saying either. What it's saying is that they trust in God. And by the nature of that trust, the fruit of that trust, the fruit in which God bears fruit in that trust is these actions of love. For God and for his people. It doesn't come, I do these, these actions and therefore God is compelled. It's actually God compels us through his love. Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then... Come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only to go on and doing these abominations. He almost, God's almost breaking up every commandment that he has listed. You, you come into my house. During the week, you break all these commandments. You go after other gods. You steal. All these things you do. And then you come in my house. Like, yeah, God has saved me. God has delivered me. Great is my God. And then the next moment, you walk out and you do the same things over and over again. You have misunderstood my promises. You have misunderstood the power of God. You have misunderstood how he is actually saving you. Romans 6, Paul gets at this in the same way, 1 through 2. This misunderstanding. What should we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's, it's this idea Paul's going like, like, oh, you misunderstand grace. If you think God's grace is for you, is that you have a license to now keep on sinning, then you actually misunderstand grace. It's not just forgiveness. Grace is much more powerful than that. Grace runs deep in your life and digs down into your soul and begins to change the very character, the brokenness in which you have. It makes no sense to thank God for saving you and then to think that he hasn't begun to save you from the very nature of your sin. Coming to church every Sunday saying you believe and trust God and then you walk out your doors and the life is not reflected of that faith. Your life is not reflected of a transforming life out of sin. You walk out the door saying, doesn't matter what I do. I can still do whatever. God 
will forgive. That is a superstitious faith. Root it in a half-truth. None of us do that, right? I mean, I already confessed, and what you judge greatly are my sins. Jeremiah 7, 11 through 15. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. I mean, these, I mean, how are you hearing the harshness of these words that God is saying? These are not soft words. God says, I have seen you do these things. I'm aware of it. This is not hidden from my eyes. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, and I will cast you out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Ephraim is Israel. Do you hear the strength of God's words? He's not fooling around. I have seen it. I have seen your evil. Here's a truth that you need to live with. God knows every evil that you've done. Every evil that you thought of, he knows it. It is not hidden from his eyes. And then he says, like, you put your faith in this temple, that somehow this temple, which you know is like, well, this is the place that demonstrates to us that God is with us. And you think, aha, that's all we need. And he says, look what I did to Shiloh. Here's what you need to know about Shiloh. Shiloh was the first permanent place of the tabernacle, which preceded the temple, right? The tabernacle was the tent that, that was where God presided it, right? And the, the, the Ark of the Covenant presided, and that's where the Holy of Holies, and that's where the high priest would go, and that's what traveled around in the, in the d- wilderness with them. And then uh, eventually David said, hey, I've got an idea, we should have a permanent place, and his son Solomon builds a permanent temple. But before that, the temple, when they resided in their land, it, the tabernacle was permanently placed in a tent at Shiloh. And he, here's the thing. You get this in, in 1 Samuel uh, 4, those that want to, uh, 4 through 7. So what, what the Israel's, as they were conquering the Canaanites in this land that God had given them, they would often bring out, and before them, they would have the Ark of the Covenant lead the army in battle. And every time this would, it's a symbol like, that God is leading this battle. And when this happened, they would win. Every battle in the beginning, they're like, this is fantastic. Like, we can, tr- God is with us. We can do whatever we want. Wherever we take this ark, it will go. It's like this superstitious belief. Instead of actually trusting that God is leading them, they begin, hey, we can do whatever. We'll just take this ark with us. And so, because they get into this superstitious day, because they, they start falling after other gods, they, they go against the Philistines one time, and the Philistines defeat them with the ark. They capture the ark. They take it. Now, here's what happens. Bad things happen to the Philistines because they have the ark as well, too. And the Philistines are like, we don't want this ark anymore. You can have it back. And here's the thing. The ark never returns to Shiloh. And eventually, that tabernacle in that city is laid to waste. 
God judges them. We actually, the ark kind of disappears in scripture a bit, and we don't find out about it until Indiana Jones finds it <laughs> later. <laughs> no, 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 that's not true at all. But it just kind of, the ark just, Solomon eventually puts the ark in the temple, and then that's the last we hear about it. We have no idea where the ark went, uh, which is actually kind of a good thing because it became more of a superstitious thing. The, the point is, is that the people of Silo took pride that God was with them and their actions didn't matter, and they embraced sin, all sorts of sin, including going after other gods. And what did God do? God said, that's not trust. That's not a relationship with me. And God abandons them. He leaves them. Jesus has this connection. uh, When he goes to the temple, and he has Jeremiah on his mind, and, and just before, in, in Mark, just before he goes into the temple and starts uh, throwing things around and uh, casting out the den of robbers, he sees a fig tree. In Mark eleven twelve through 14. On the following day when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing the distance, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when it came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard this. And the next thing he goes in, and he starts throwing around the tables in the temple in judgment for his people. And the, the point of that fig tree is that it, it wasn't bearing fruit. Like it wasn't a season for fruit. But here's the thing. It is always season for fruit for God's people. Always. And that's the parable on which he was saying, may you never bear fruit again. You're trusted, that tree was trusting in other things, right? In a sense, that's what, that's what the metaphor is going after. The, the people in the temple were trusting in all these different actions and pious behaviors in which they had it to, instead of realizing that Jesus was the God that this temple was for. That they didn't need the temple. That he walked in their midst and they could not recognize him. It's the same thing as the Pharisees mock Jesus when Jesus says, this temple I will tear down in three days. They laugh, Psh, this temple, this is, where, this is God's house. You're not going to knock it down. It took years to build this thing. You're not going you to knock it down, first of all, because God is with us. Jesus has the same things when and the disciples are coming upon Jerusalem for the first time together and they see the magnificent temple and they're, they're like, gee, look at Jesus, look how amazing this huge, gigantic temple, the largest building, like, isn't it so beautiful? And Jesus weeps. It's a weird response. Because at that moment, they're, like, they're excited about the temple. Like, Jesus is with them. And they're excited about the temple? He weeps. They put their trust in the wrong thing. Faith is not in a, in a temple. Faith is not in an idea that God is present with us. Faith is an idea that he actually is present. That God resides with us. Superstitious faith uses God to achieve an end, a purpose, and a want. Meaning, superstitious faith tries to manipulate God, tries to transform God to do what you want. It is easy for that to seep into our lives. 
even if that's not like the cognitive thought that we have, the behaviors that we have, we actually think, if we do this, God will do this for us. If we're just better people, God will be better with us. He'll be better with me. Real faith trusts God to transform you. Real faith actually understands that this is God's purpose, is to root out sin and that very nature, to destroy evil, death, and that sin nature in you. This is what he's accomplishing in the world, that God is transforming us back to his image, back to his character, and trusting that this is God's act and not ours. And it doesn't just happen in a place at a certain time. He resides with his people all the time. How are you superstitious? Or how are you little-stitious in your faith? How do you use the good things of the Lord, like church, to create rituals or ways to rationalize your sin? A superstitious faith is one that actually rationalizes sin to free ourselves from the guilt of any real change in our life. I'll just repeat that again for you. A superstitious faith, one that tries to manipulate God, is one that actually tries to rationalize your sin to actually free yourself from not changing or from not being transformed by God. How are you using some of your superstitions? Using good things to try to manipulate God. Perhaps it's you're trying to be a good person, a better person. That's not a bad thing. We ought to be better people. We ought to seek the good in things. We ought to, to love our neighbors. But sometimes we try to be a better person and just try to be better than the people around us. Well, God will do good things for me then. I will be in his good favor. See, I'm better. Perhaps it's uh, just reading your Bible and you've you got to keep up on your, your reading plan. That's a good thing. Reading scripture, that is not a bad thing. And if you, if you keep up on your daily prayer then, or, or in daily reading, then God will be on your side and the, and the day will go right. But if you miss a day, watch out. Have you had those thoughts? That's a superstitious faith. Or going to church, right? If I don't go to church, man, my, my week just won't be the same. We used to, I used to be a chaplain over at Western England, and we have a Tuesday Bible study. Marianne was in that, right? Woo. That's where I met Marianne. And so some of the, some of the kids who were just kind of on the edge of a relationship with God, they would come and they would not be very faithful in coming to Tuesday, but when they come, they would, always, they would say this thing, Oh, when I come to Tuesday night Bible study, my week just is better. And I'm like, okay, I'm glad that's not why you feel, but that's actually, that cannot be true. That is not how things work in the world. It may be how you perceive it. Maybe, maybe coming to Tuesday night Bible study is just a good thing in itself. It doesn't actually maybe improve the next thing, or, or God's going to have favor upon you on your week because you do that. That is just another form of name it and claim it theology. 
That's another form of the prosperity gospel. If I am in God's good gracious, if I do the right things, if I, if I am re- religious, if I go to church, if I read my Bible and pray, all good things, then God will bless me. God will give me money. God will bless my life. Good things. I will prosper in this world. That is not the promise of God. That is a superstitious faith. We've had this uh, in evangelical circles and uh, uh, the sexual prosperity gospel. That if, in the sense that if you are pure in your sexuality, as if somehow any being could be pure in their sexual being. Like, no one is pure. Only God is pure, and only God makes people pure. But if you're pure, if you save yourself before marriage, when you get married, God will just bless you with incredible sex. What? First of all, all of us who are married, no, that is nonsense. Right? It's not if I do good things, then God will somehow bless me in this way. It, yes, it all, like I said, all those things saving yourself for one person, yes, this is a good thing. This is God's order. This is God's holiness. Reading the Bible, those are all good things. But if you use those good things to try to manipulate God, to try to get something or stay in a good standing, that is a superstitious faith. That is not real faith. This is what Jeremiah is saying. If I just attend church more, I'm good attendance in church. If, if, I, if I'm in the leadership in church or my serving in church, then I'll be in good standing. All of these things are used to negotiate with God for good standing, favor, salvation, keeping certain things from happening. Bad things won't happen to my life. Here's the thing I will say to you. All of you that do those good things, you will eventually die. Just what happens. People die. This is not his promise that if you do these things, good things will happen in life. That is not the gospel. Scott read in his book, The Wholeness Paradise, it gives five diagnostic tools to determine if you have superstitious faith. Hold on to these. Listen to these. This might help you determine if you have a superstitious faith. Any, first one, any behavior, belief, or object that you believe gives you license and permission to sin is a pious talisman, an idol, and is driving you away from the gospel is a, a superstitious faith. Number two, any behavior, belief, or object that you believe has power to save you apart from the power of the living God is superstitious faith and is driving you away from the gospel. Number three, any behavior, belief, or object that you believe gives you true security, comfort, and convenience apart from the living God is superstitious faith and is driving you away from the gospel. Number four, any behavior, belief, or object that dulls the conviction of sin, that you need to repent and turn to the Lord in faith, is driving you from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any, number five, any belief, behavior, or object that you believe exempts you from being transformed by God through the power of the Holy Spirit is a superstitious faith and is driving you away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, a person says, like, hey, I've made it. Superstitious faith. You have not made it by that very statement. Super, uh, did you hear what he was doing here on all these, these uh, diagnostic tools? The connection to sin? 
The connection to sin and superstitious faith. The connection to sin and not trusting God. It's such a subtle thing. When, when our faith becomes, it seems like faith, it seems religious, but it's superstitious. It's actually because there's a deep connection to sin in our life. A denial or a blindness to sin. And here's the biblical truth. God never whitewashes sin. Every time in the gospel, Jesus never looks away from sin. He always confronts it, calls it out, and asks for repentance. Always. He's never going to look in your life and say, well, that's okay. That part of it will do. No, he's like, we need to call that. He might take time in certain areas of your life because you can only handle so much conviction. But he is always going to work in your life. Until the day you die, there will be conviction of sin. And if there's not conviction of sin, there is a superstitious face that needs to be rooted out. God doesn't do this to shame us, by the way. God does this to save us. God understands that we don't just need forgiveness of sins, that we need the root of the problem taken out of us. This is his work of salvation. That he, yeah, forgiveness. But he is going to root out this problem in our life, change us into his transforming love and his grace, going to change us into his character. Scott read in his book, this is what he says, the prophet Jeremiah is saying that God is not satisfied merely to forgive human sins without any regard for the life that results. The God of the Bible is not satisfied with pious observance that reflects a holy, untransformed life. He is, about the, he is about the work of salvation, but salvation is on to something. Salvation is on to the very eternal character of God. That's what he's knitted in us. It is a salvation from sin, brokenness, and death to God. We talked about this uh, two weeks ago, and, and Jody talked about, right, that we, we don't obey God to get something from God. It's not how it works. In fact, that's how, uh, not, not how any obedience works in life. It's not how any loving works in life. We are actually transformed to love. And we only begin to understand what real love is. And then it actually learns to fall into obedience. When we actually, to serve in the capacity, and when she told the, uh, the Israels to do, right, obey in this capacity, only then do we actually understand what love is. It's not I obey and therefore I love. I do all these things and that's love. That is not love. Love is deep-rooted from God that's within us, a God that loves us, transforms us into love, that's demonstrated, that frees us to freely obey him and love our neighbor in that capacity. It never works from obedience to love. That's a superstitious faith. I, I want to be clear. We are called to ask God for things. God wants you to pray and communicate. And yeah, it's okay to ask for good health. It's okay to ask to pray for things. It's okay. God is not going to be offended by your requests. He wants you to be in relationship and ask those deep things in your life. He knows what you want. He also knows what you need. Don't, hide what, don't think you can hide what you want from God. Speak them clearly. 
God can handle those requests. He wants that relationship. But just know that you're not talking to a genie. You're talking to a God that is all-knowing. And he knows what you need. He's always going to give you just what you need. If you look at the, uh, the book of Job, if you know the story of Job, long book, I'm going to try to summarize it here in like a paragraph. Right, right. so Job, since, uh, Satan says, I don't think Job will trust you if bad things, like you take away all the good things in the life. And God said, go ahead, test him. Go ahead, test him. Job's going to trust me. And so then you have this long story of horrendous things happening to Job. Things, life, children taken away, health taken away. And Job struggles. There's, there's this, like, Job's in relationship with God. He's asking him. He's confronting God. It's a long story of this book, chapter after chapter. And then his friends come in and say, Job, I think there's something wrong with your life. And Job's like, no, like, get out of here. And th- there's a relationship with God, but it's a struggle. He gets angry with God. Here's the thing that God is asking for Job. Job, I, this is what the lesson we get. God wants us to be in relationship with him. In the end, Job, at the beginning, thought he actually trusted God. Job actually learned what it meant to trust God. The book of Job doesn't solve the problem of why bad things happen. The book of Job explains that God is always present with his people. Even when they think he's not. And all Job asks of God, all Job continually asks of God, respond, give a response to me. I have these pleas and requests. Why aren't you doing something? And you know what? Eventually God responds. God responds in the book of Job to Job. He doesn't respond the way Job wants him to respond. But he responds. He He essentially tells Job, you don't understand my ways. You don't understand what I'm doing. That applies to your life. You don't understand what God is doing in your life. But God has a plan, and it's a plan for your good. It is a plan that's deep-rooted to get out that sin nature in you, to transform you into his character. Faith is about being in relationship with God. That relationship is transformative. Reading the Bible reading the Bible in community, praying, praying in community, speaking and listening to God, hard things to do, worshiping together, serving together, all of these things are good things. All of these things that God asks us to do and are the ordinary means in which God uses to transform us. It's not the only way. God doesn't need these ways but it's a thing he calls us into. But none of these ways are means in we actually control or manipulate God. They are the means in which he transforms us. Faith is not a transaction with God. It's not bargaining with him. There's no quid pro quo. It's not God bless me if I do this. God promises transformation. That is the gospel message of salvation. There is no shortcut, no means around transformation. Our task is not to earn that transformation, not to look for loopholes or shortcuts in that transformation, because there is none. Our task is to live out that transformation, the fruit of God's work in our life. 
sin makes us prone to a superstitious or a little stitious faith. We all fall prey to it. You won't be able to control your thoughts about this. God's love, his power, his will, his promise is to transform you from this superstitious faith to a full-fledged faith and trust in him. You want something to ask God about today? God, root out the superstition in my life. Root out the sin in my life. Help me to actually trust you. Brothers and sisters, there's no shortcuts. Let us give thanks to a God that forgives our sin, but also pays the reparation of our sin, pays the penalty, and also transforms us from the inside out, from sin to holiness. But this is God's work, and this is his promise. Let us embrace that work. Let us live out that transformation, that fruit of God in our lives, the promise in which he gives us. Let us live out that relationship of love so the whole world can see what God is doing. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, it is hard to fully trust you. There's so many things in my life that distract, that confuse, that lead me astray from trusting you and trusting in myself or other things. Help us not to barter with you, Lord. Help us to come before you. Help us to be in relationship with you. Help us to struggle with you. Help us to speak all those things. Help us to learn to trust more and more in you in your promises, and then help us to live out this transformed life one day at a time, one moment at a time. We give you thanks that your ways are not our ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.